0: It's now time for Just The Terror, with Nick Guerra. The Wave Back when I was maybe 6 or 7 years old, I used to sleep over at my grandparents' house a lot. But this one particular time in January brings back some scary memories. We were about to head over to my grandparents. I had forgotten something in the house, so my dad and I ran into our house while my mom and little brother waited in the car. He told me to go get what I was looking for while he was on a phone call with a customer. I only needed one thing to take with me, and that was my favorite stuffed animal that I had since I was maybe one. I ran to my dad to tell him that I had gotten what I needed, but he was still on the phone. I was bored waiting for him, and I looked out the kitchen window into our backyard and just waved. Why? I don't know. Kids do the weirdest things. However the creepy part sets in when I see a hand with a pair of black gloves wave back from behind a tree my natural instinct is to get my dad but he just told me stop kidding around as luck would have it we forgot to arm the alarm system and we went out for the rest of the night then they dropped me off at my grandparents for the weekend maybe 20 minutes goes by and we get a phone call from my parents saying that our house got broken into now looking back I probably waved at the person who broke into our house the people in 1979 my dad was 16 years old he grew up in southern Arkansas near Spavinaw Creek deep in the country he knew that land better than he knew anything but my grandmother was still hesitant when he asked to go camping at the creek for the weekend with his friends from the other farms around the area after much deliberation my grandmother finally agreed that weekend he and his friends packed up headed to the creek The group was made up of nine teenage boys, ages 13 to 17. When they got there, they spent the day fishing and playing games. It started to get dark, so they started a fire. The sun went down, and it got so dark that my dad could no longer really see the faces of those around him. He looked around the fire and began trying to identify his friends. He could hardly see. He figured out who most of them were, but he was confused by the number of people around the fire. He counted to himself. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. He counted again and again, trying to determine whether he had accidentally counted someone twice. After counting over and over, he began to panic. He thought, who is this extra person sitting with us around the fire? He didn't know how to tell his friends. He was afraid that whoever or whatever was with him around the fire would be set off by his telling the group and they would hurt them. He finally said to his friends, count the people. They all muttered, what? What are you talking about? Confused by him disrupting the conversation and say this random sentence. My dad insisted loudly, count the people. They sat there in silence for a few seconds. They realized what he was saying. They all jumped up and sprinted away from the fire. About 15 minutes, they all made their way back to the fire. They all came back safe. None of them found out who or what was around that fire with them. But to this day, when my family goes camping with my dad's childhood friends, I can see them all looking around the fire and counting the people. California caller. I'm a New Jersey native who spent a semester at college in California in the fall of 1979. I shared an off-campus apartment with three other women who were all local LA girls. One weekend, all three of my roommates decided to go home. I never ever spent the night completely alone in any living situation and I was scared. But I was 3,000 miles away from my family and didn't know anyone in Los Angeles well enough to go stay with them. So I sucked it up, made sure the deadbolt was on my door, and went to bed at my usual time. I kept my TV on and drifted off to sleep only to be awakened by the phone ringing. I looked at my alarm clock and saw it was 2 in the morning. I picked up the phone and said hello. I didn't hear anything at first, but I could tell someone was on the other end. Then the breathing started. It was a slow, deliberate, raspy, heavy breathing clearly intended to frighten me. I hung the phone up. Shaking and sure that I was about to be murdered, I phoned the campus police and told them what just happened. They promised to drive by my apartment building a few times, but other than that, there was nothing they could do. I stayed awake the rest of the night and finally fell asleep around dawn. The next day, one of my roommates came home early, so I wasn't alone for the rest of the weekend. I put the incident out of my mind and got on with my life. Flash forward to the fall of 1986. By then I was married and back in Jersey. My husband had to go away on a business trip and I would be all alone that night for the first time since the incident in California. A lot had happened since then, I'd become more confident and wasn't really too concerned about being alone, so I went to sleep like any other night. I was jarred awake by the phone ringing. I looked at my alarm clock. It was 2 in the morning. I picked up the receiver and said hello. What I heard chilled me to the bone. Nothing for a few seconds. Then the raspy, heavy breathing. 3,000 miles away, 7 years later, it was my California caller. I spent the rest of the week at my parents' house. Yellow Brook. When I was younger, I partied a lot. My college classes were not a priority. I didn't even want to be in school. I just went so my parents wouldn't think I was a disappointment. My life was a flurry of alcohol, drugs, and the occasional one night stand. One night I lost a part of myself that I can never get back. My friends, Louis, Gage, and I, were driving around. Sitting in the back of Louis's minivan, I tried my best to ignore the horrible music blaring from the speakers. Gage passed me a joint from the front seat and cracked open a beer. Lewis said, Pass me one of those. Gage answered, Not while you're driving. The last thing you need is another DUI. I took a drag. When's the acid supposed to kick in? Gage shrugged his shoulders. Soon. It's been an hour since you took it. Where are we going? Lewis answered, Nowhere in particular, Roy. Then Gage suggested, We can walk around Yellowbrook for a bit and kill some time. I gotta take a piss anyway. Lewis took a right down Burroughs Lane and pulled into Yellow Brook's parking lot. Gage burst out of the van and sprinted for the forest. I stared at the forest. The colors of the surrounding trees, bushes, and flowers were amplified. The smell of pine and citrus combined in the air. This wouldn't make sense to anyone who hadn't taken LSD or other hallucinogens, but I could taste the forest. Lewis yelled out, Are you done, Gage? You're taking forever. Gage came running out of the woods, struggling to button his pants back up. I found a trap door by a tree. I heard someone from the other side crying and begging for help. Lewis was like, stop lying. Gage gestured towards the woods. Go check it out if you don't believe me. Lewis and I followed the path. The birds chirped their song and the lilies looked like they were dancing. As we walked past them, we came across a green door covered in moss, twigs, and dead bugs. Lewis rolled his eyes. Are you sure you're actually hearing someone or you just messed up? Please. Help me, a frail, feminine voice pleaded. Gage went to open the door. It's okay. We're going to help you. Lewis grabbed Gage's arm. Stop. This could be a trap. Don't you think it's a little too convenient that all of a sudden we hear a woman screaming for help? I mean, it could be some psycho trying to bait us. The woman cried out. Please help me. A man put me here. I haven't eaten or drank for days. Gage rubbed his temple. We've got to do something. We, we can't just leave her here. Lewis said, we we can go to the cops. Gage jerked his arm free from Lewis's grasp. What if she's dead by then? Huh? By the time we get help, she's dead. Lewis ran his fingers through his hair in frustration. They're better equipped to handle the situation. Besides, we're all high right now. I don't want to risk getting busted just because you think you hear someone begging for help. Gage pushed past Lewis and struggled with the door. He cleared away the brush and discovered there was an old rusty lock on the handle. Damn, we gotta break the lock somehow. I scanned the area and spotted a large rock next to Gage. Use the rock next to you to break the lock man, it's all rusted, you'll probably break it with a couple of blows. He struck the lock and it broke off easily. Underneath the door was an abyss of darkness. He pulled out his keychain and used the mini flashlight attached to illuminate the dark. A naked woman laid on the ground. Her hair was caked with dirt and blood, her eyes were sunken, buried in an ocean of purple and blackened flesh. Her nose was twisted in the opposite direction. Dry blood was underneath her nose and at the corners of her mouth where her lips were torn and swollen. Bruises and cuts covered the rest of her body. Gage jumped down into the hole and approached the woman hesitantly. Can you walk? The woman wiped tears from her eyes. No, I I think one of my legs is broken. Gage answered, Okay, I'm going to pick you up and my friends are going to help lift you out. As Gage got closer to the woman, my heart pounded rapidly. A horrible tightness formed in my chest, my stomach twisted in knots as an overwhelming sense of panic and dread consumed my body. Gage bent down to pick up the woman. She grabbed a hold of his arm and tore it off in one swift motion. He dropped to his knees and clutched the area where his arm had once been. He stared at the once incapacitated woman as she stood over him, feasting on his severed arm like it was a giant turkey leg. Yellow liquid oozed from her mouth as she ate dissolving the limb. I don't know what I was looking at anymore, but I knew that I was frozen in fear. Lewis started to run, let's get out of here. The message was delivered, but the rest of my body didn't get the memo. I couldn't take my eyes off of what was happening. Then all of a sudden, the door slammed shut. I pulled and I tried to open it, but I couldn't get it to budge. I banged on the door until my fists were bruised and cut. Helplessness washed over me as I could do nothing to save Gage. Tears spilled down my face as I listened to the sounds of screaming and ripping of flesh and breaking of bones. I snapped back to reality and ran for the van. At the police station, Lewis and I were scared stiff. Now, the police didn't care about the drugs. The focus was the woman and Gage. We told them that we found a woman calling out for help beneath a trap door in the woods. Gage opened the door, jumped in, twisted his ankle very badly when he hit the ground. The cops found the door, but they never found Gage or what had taken him. Lewis and I were prime suspects in the disappearance, since we were the last ones to see him. Eventually, we were let go because there was no evidence Lewis or I had harmed Gage. Even though we were innocent in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the public, we were guilty. The rumor that floated around campus was that Lewis and I were Satanists and we sacrificed Gage. Some of my professors were visibly uncomfortable around me, some even suggested that I transfer schools. Gage's family held a vigil in his honor. I made the mistake of showing up, and it was made perfectly clear that I was not welcome there. His family also had the police in their sights. They publicly criticized the lack of effort to find their son, and they claimed that the police knew what had happened to Gage and were covering it up for some reason. The family announced if the police wouldn't help them, then they would conduct their own investigation and find out what happened. Gage's parents, along with a few other family members and friends, went into Yellow Brook determined to find answers. They found no leads. After the failed search, the family moved across the country. After the incident at Yellowbrook, I took school seriously. I needed to pour myself into something to keep my mind off of what happened to Gage. From then on, I stayed sober. Drugs were just another reminder of what happened. I graduated, got a good job, and started a family. As for Louis, well, we soon drifted apart after everything happened. He dropped out of college and just got a job at a gas station. A mutual friend had a drink with him at a bar a few years ago lewis was sickly thin about half of his teeth were missing and those that remained were yellow and rotten he was still working terrible jobs and had a few illegal side hustles going on out of curiosity one day i looked him up and found his obituary overdose with the cause i wish i could have done something more to help him 20 years later the fear that night still haunts me i buried what happened deep inside me for so long i had almost forgotten about it until I saw in the news that a group of college students went for a hike at Yellowbrook. They claimed to have heard a woman begging for help beneath a trap door. One student opened the door, jumped in the pit, and the door slammed shut. The other students were not able to get the door open again. When the police investigated, they didn't find the student nor the woman. The other students are the only suspects in the case. So please, for your safety and my peace of mind, stay away from Yellowbrook. distant lullaby this happened a few years ago my wife and i just had our first child as new parents always are we were always on guard and cautious especially at night although our baby did have his own room next to us we also had a video monitor on our bedside table so we could check up on him if we needed to well one night i just woke up out of nowhere i decided to check on our son i clicked the button that turns on the video image and what i saw scared me like nothing ever before my baby boy was gone Now I know that instinct should have made me run right into the baby's room. Instead, I froze. I looked over, and my wife was sleeping next to me. Finally, I moved, but not to run into the other room like I should have done. Instead, I turned up the volume on the baby monitor. I heard another woman's voice singing a lullaby. I'm not kidding. Another woman was singing to my baby in a very soft, gentle, and melodic voice. I don't remember what song it was, something like, Go to sleep, little baby. Finally my froze broke. I jumped up ran through the hallway and burst into my boy's room He was sound asleep in his crib. No woman. No singing Turns out the monitor was picking up my next-door neighbor's monitor They had just bought the video monitor for their own newborn on our recommendation It does not want a name. I miss my brother It has been three weeks since he went missing. Nobody knows where he is or where he might have gone. Last time anyone saw him was at the police station. He'd been arrested for driving under the influence. This came as a shock to me and everyone who knew him because he doesn't drink or use drugs. He doesn't even drink coffee and I know he'd rather suffer through a headache than take an aspirin. But apparently, on the night of May 24th, he drove his car into the middle of someone's yard in a neighborhood not too far from our home and started revving the engine. It was loud enough to wake up the entire neighborhood. When the police came, he wouldn't get out of the car. He just sat there, staring at them through the windows as he continued revving over and over. He didn't resist when they broke down the driver's side window, unlocked the door, and pulled him out. He was even cooperative to a point, though he refused to speak. When they asked him who he was, what he was doing, where he was going, how much he had to drink, he just stared at them, expressionless. They decided to tow his car and toss him in the drunk tank to let him sleep it off. But he didn't sleep at all the guard at the police station said my brother stood in the middle of the cell all night staring out with an eerie blank expression then he disappeared as in he was there one moment then gone the next like a magic trick shocked the guard checked the cell and found that it was locked then she asked a couple of other drunks what happened to him but they said they didn't know who she was talking about they said it was just them in there and it had been all night There are security cameras all over the police station, but somehow he managed to avoid showing up on any of them, except the one overlooking the main entrance. In the video, you can clearly see him slowly walking out of the station, then he disappears off screen. A couple of uniformed officers pass him by as they enter the building, but they paid him no heed. One was the officer that arrested him. She later said that she didn't recall seeing anyone there at the moment. This begs the question. If my brother was able to avoid being seen at all by all the cameras in the building, then why did he turn up on the last one? In the video, he walks right through the center of the shot as if he's deliberately trying to be seen. He seems to even look up at the camera, though to be honest, it's more like he's looking through it straight at whoever's watching. From there, it's as if he ceases to exist. There are no other traces of him either. Search parties have all been unsuccessful. He's just gone. In our small community, there's been nothing but talk of his disappearance. This has unfortunately led to a lot of gossip and rumors. Some people are saying he was on the run from a malicious, esoteric organization which he had bad dealings with. They said he bribed the police as part of an elaborate plot to disappear without a trace. Others say he was on a new designer drug that somehow enabled him to sneak out of the police station undetected. Still, others say he renounced his life and join the Amish, and that they're keeping him hidden in some lonesome barn somewhere. I don't know if there's any truth to these stories or not. I just want my brother back. We all do. His friends and family, and everyone he loves. My parents are inconsolable. It's as if time has stopped inside the small apartment where we live. The door to my brother's room remains closed as it has since he disappeared. I peeked inside it once, about a week ago, thinking about him. It was, as he left it, spartan, with just a bed, a writing desk with his laptop sitting on it, and no other furnishings or decorations. The bare white walls seemed to echo its emptiness. Looking at the laptop made me tear up as I recalled how he and I argued over how loud he typed. When he wrote, he pounded the keys hard and fast, making a sound like a machine gun, the sound carried into my room, impossible to ignore. He and I would fight and scream at each other over it, but in the end, he always resumed typing the exact same way he said i had to get these thoughts out of my head i had to get them out as fast as possible or, or else i'll lose them forever he typed all day and all night it nearly drove me crazy i uh, i have to admit that it is nice to finally have some peace and quiet though i'm ashamed to say i feel this way as i lay in bed during yet another night of no sleep i stare at the ceiling in my darkened bedroom the shadows seemed to swirl around up there, black on black, darkness upon darkness, curling into a deeper darkness still. Then I hear something, It sound of typing, a staccato rhythm, heavy, clacking away, just like my brother used to. That's impossible, is it? I slid out of bed into a pair of shorts and a shirt, then crept through the darkness of my bedroom toward the door. I heard someone whispering beneath the sound of typing. My brother used to talk to himself while he was riding, and I could sometimes hear his underbreath whispers from my room, but it didn't sound like him, it sounded like someone else. I opened the door, and I heard the sound of typing echoing off the walls in the hallway. It's so loud, I'm surprised it didn't wake anyone. But then again, natural sleep doesn't come easily in our household these days. Mom finds her way to nightly unconsciousness with pills and Dad with booze. They're both likely dead to the world until the drugs run their course. The typing seemed to intensify as I approached my brother's door. There was a faint light coming from under it, spilling into the hallway. It's a pale blue light, like that from a laptop screen. I held my breath as I reached for the doorknob, but then I decided to knock. I rapped upon the door, lightly but firmly. The typing stopped. In a voice that was meek and strained, I called out my brother's name, but there was no response. My hand was trembling. I reached for the doorknob and started to turn it. The latch bolts slid out of the strike plate, and then the door opened an inch, two inches, three. The glow from the laptop screen reflected off the walls, casting a spectral luminescence throughout the room. I saw my brother's bed, then his desk. A dark silhouette was sitting behind it. I heard my brother's voice say my name, yet it was not his voice. It was different somehow, empty, hollow. He said, come see what I've written. I wrote it for you in particular. His strange use of the phrase in particular frightened me for some reason, though I don't know why. I walked toward the silhouette and looked at the screen. I considered placing my hand upon his shoulder, but decided not to. Standing behind him, I leaned down to read what he had written. Despite the amount of typing I heard, which went on for at least a few minutes, there was only a single sentence written upon the page. It does not want a name. I shook my head and scoffed. I asked, what does that mean? And for that matter, where have you been? Mom and Dad are beyond worried, and me as well. What's going on? He turned his head to look up at me, but his face had disappeared. His eyes, nose, and mouth all obliterated beneath the smooth surface like that of a mannequin. The laptop screen turned off, filling the room with darkness. I couldn't see anything as I heard him scoot back from his desk and stand. I instinctively took a step backward. He said, it's safe but the voice wasn't his. It was robotic, devoid of emotion or inflection. It's safe, it's safe, it's safe. I turned around to run, but found myself encircled in shadow which somehow formed a solid wall around me. No matter how hard I pushed, I couldn't get through. He said, it's safe. He's standing right behind me now. I was like, no, please. He placed his hands upon my shoulder and I jolted upright. For the briefest moment, I caught a glimpse of the universe before it formed. Before the Big Bang, when pure nothingness filled the infinite void. A primordial emptiness, devoid of matter or substance, yet somehow alive. Full of emptiness, or empty of fullness. The result is the same. It's safe. I started understanding something. A tiny piece of this nothingness still exists. Somehow it escaped being destroyed by the event that formed the universe. It desires a return to the way things were when nothing was all that existed. I heard a steady humming sound like white noise rising all around me. I reached up and touched the smooth surface where my brother's face used to be. It's still him inside. I could feel it, but it's as if his essence is draining away. I was losing him more and more, moment by moment. I felt the urge to follow, to pursue him down into the black hole of nothingness. I thought of my parents. How sad they'd be if both their children were missing. But then again, it's only a matter of time before they join us too. Then we'll all be together, forever. I look up to where his eyes would be and nod. He puts his hand on my shoulder, and we sink into the shadows, becoming one with the nothingness, together. Curious Boys Don't Belong There When I was young, anything that had to do with archaeology began to thrill me. My mom would take me to the library to do whatever little research projects a teacher gives a nine-year-old, or to finish my homework, and I would sneak old issues of National Geographic into my books or under my work. When she wasn't looking, I would go back to reading the articles about dead civilizations, the work being done to excavate their tombs and cities, and their superstitions and religions. So when my birthday rolled around the next year and my parents asked me what I wanted, I proudly named out several books about archaeology. And a few days later, I was given my birthday present. Three big and heavy books about ancient societies that lived in North and South America and the Caribbean. It wasn't exactly what I had been expecting. I thought I had explicitly asked for books about ancient Greece or Egypt. Regardless, this was something new and exciting, and the books were about these people and excavations that had occurred for each respective society. Being that I was only about 10 years old at the time, I was, and still am actually, a huge fan of breasts. In one of the books, there was an image of a dark figurine that had been carved, presumably from some dark stone. It was an onyx, and I can't remember what the stone actually was at this point, but it was a figurine of a pregnant woman with enormous breasts, so I liked the picture. It was missing its head, though. On the adjacent page was an image of a pregnant tribeswoman, The book made the conjecture that the figurine was an ancient image, icon, of a pregnant tribeswoman. I kept looking back and forth between the two pictures, the figurine was missing its head. It began to unsettle me, and eventually I became so freaked out by the juxtaposition of the images that, during future read-throughs, I would skip those pages entirely. As I grew older, my interest in archaeology diminished quite a bit. My archeology span books ended up in a donation box for the local library, and I moved to other interests, namely fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc. Several years down the road, my parents and I went to a bed and breakfast that was owned by friends of my mother. It's an old estate that is next to the main road. There's the main house where the bed and breakfast is operated, a carriage house, and about 50 yards away, another smaller house, which is where the owners, my mother's friends, live. The estate is on an enormous, old plot of land, and despite being next to the main road, is surrounded by apple orchards. My parents took me there for my 16th birthday. Just what every 16-year-old boy wants, right? They were going to let me drive up and back, though, since I had just gotten my license, so I acquiesced and went with them. The place was amazing. It was enormous. There were stories of ghost sightings all sorts of history surrounded the area. The houses on the property were all around 150 years old. And the orchards were awesome. The staff at the B&B were really cool. Everyone was laid back. One of the cooks was serene, a thin black woman. She was very pretty, but distracted, flighty, and she had this really thick island accent. Regardless, she was very entertaining, and she had an awesome laugh. When we were all hanging out at night, she would often turn her eyes toward the orchard and kind of get lost in her thoughts. We stayed there for a little more than a week. After the first few days, I had grown somewhat bored. I asked my mother's friend if it'd be okay if I took a stroll through the orchard. She said, sure, explore as much as you like, but get back here before sunset. There are coyotes in the area. Awesome. That childish urge to explore had woken up since I was immersed in that place that had some actual history. Something inside of me really wanted to find an old Civil War bullet or arrowhead, anything really, out in the orchard. The first day I was out there was really uneventful. In fact, it grew old quick. The property was immense, and I explored for about two hours, and all I could see was a tree line somewhere in the distance. And my mom's friend wasn't kidding about the coyotes. I saw prints in some of the areas where the soil was softer. There was one spot where it looked as if a couple of them had bedded down for the night. There was a swath of terrain in between the two apple trees that had been tamped down. The soil in the middle was actually devoid of any grass or anything else. At first, I thought this was strange, but then I found a giant apple on a limb and plucked it and ate it. On my way back to the house, I got a little lost, but I happened to see Serene in the distance. She saw me, smiled, and I caught up to her. She was humming what sounded like a lullaby. I asked her about it, and she told me that it was an island song that people in the Caribbean sang in order to calm noisy or upset spirits. We chatted a bit, and she told me that she had been working there for about eight months. She said that the first two and a half months had been atrocious. When pressed, she became a bit distant again and said that the spirits of the area were very restless. I asked her how she knew and why she was so concerned. She smiled broadly and said that all the women in her family had a deep connection with the spirits. She said that, soon after her arrival, she began seeing many of them, and they began seeing her. They began to take quite an interest in her and would bother her incessantly, particularly during the night. She said, old men and women that couldn't find their way They get angry, very angry, and this island song quiets them and soothes their anger. Being an inquisitive and somewhat amused teenager, I asked, Are there any spirits with us right now? She nodded her head, and her smile disappeared somewhat. I inquired, how many? She stopped in her tracks, all remnants of that smile disappeared, and she said, Boy, if I were to tell you that answer, you would pack your things and go. As we started walking again, I told her about the area that I'd found where the grass was tamped down and talked to her about coyotes. She had a suspicious look on her face, but only said, I don't think you should go back there, friend. The orchard is big, and there are many curious things in it. We got back to the B&B right as the sun started to dip. The next day, we went into town and did a bunch of touristy things that my parents wanted to do. I tagged along. It was kind of fun, but I kept thinking about the orchard. In particular, that one spot in the orchard. We got back after dark, and just as my mom's friend had said, we could hear coyotes howl. It rained that night. The next day, I asked if I could head into the orchard again. My parents said that it was fine, and so did their friends. I headed out in the afternoon, giving the soil a chance to dry some. I took a backpack with me and snuck a couple of beers into it. I also packed a sandwich. I was planning on exploring as much as I could. I went into the orchard and started making my way through the trees, roughly following the path that I had before. I walked for a couple of hours in one direction, and eventually got to some sort of property line. It was marked by an old stone wall, the type you see in Civil War flicks. The part of the orchard ended there, and a thick forest started about 100 feet beyond. I was pretty excited and followed the wall for some time. I dug through some piles of crumbled stone, hoping to find a bullet. No good. I did manage to find some arrowheads, though. I stashed them in my bag. I stopped along the wall and ate my sandwich and drank one of the stolen beers. Right before I finished, I heard a crashing into the woods. I stuffed my sandwich into my mouth, chugged the beer, and put the trash in my bag. The minute I finished, I glanced over toward the forest, and three coyotes emerged. I ducked behind the wall, hoping that they hadn't seen me. I poked my head up, and sure enough, they hadn't noticed me. They started moving, languidly, away from me, and traveling along the wall. Occasionally, they would stop when they heard something, and I would duck behind the wall again. Soon enough, the wall actually ended, and I was exposed. The minute I had nothing to hide behind, they took notice of me. All three of them, in perfect unison, turned and looked right at me. We stared at each other for a few seconds, and then they went about their business, and I started heading back into the orchard. On my way back, though, I got a little lost again and wandered around, occasionally checking the ground for Civil War bullets or old cans, anything that could make my explorations feel a bit more fruitful. Eventually, I came across the area that I had noticed a few days ago, The vegetation was still somewhat tamped down, and the spot in the middle was bare. Something didn't look right, though. I approached the spot and looked at the ground. The way that the grass had pressed down looked strange. It wasn't even flattened. It was as if a coyote had laid upon it. It was really uneven in parts. It looked as if boots or feet had stomped it down. Something caught my eye. There was something dark and smooth protruding from the center where there was no growth. I thought I had hit the jackpot. I figured this was going to be an old rifle or cannonball or something great. I grabbed a hold of whatever this thing was and gave it a tug. The ground, still damp, gave way and I pulled it freely, rather easily. It was covered in mud, but when I cleared the damp earth from it, it looked like a figurine of some sort. It was shaped odd, and from what I could tell, looked something like a fat man or woman, but it was missing its head. Then I remembered the images from my archaeology book. I also remembered the angry spirits. I started to get a little freaked out, so I tossed a figure in my backpack and started moving. I tried to hum the tune that Serene had taught me two days prior, but I couldn't remember it properly. Then, I heard something in the orchard. It sounded as if somebody was walking, ever so lightly, upon the ground. It would stop when I stopped. It would start when I started. At one point, about ten minutes away from the B&B, I stopped, dropped to the ground, and looked around the orchard. In the distance, about twenty-five yards away, three coyotes watched me intently. They had lowered their heads and were staring at me. When I stood up and began walking again, they started tracking me again. I walked very, very slowly. They walked very, very slowly. I picked up my pace. They picked up their pace. And then I heard humming. The coyotes picked up their ears. I saw Serene in the distance coming my way. Relieved, I began walking toward her. The coyotes still followed. She saw me coming toward her and smiled. I pointed to the coyotes and she paused and then laughed. It's okay, boy. They're just curious about you is all. I sighed. I approached her. She started walking with me. I told her. I found the wall today. Did you know? She looked disinterested. Did you go over it into the forest? No, no, no. But that's where I first saw the coyotes. She smiled. And you followed them, didn't you? Yeah. How how did you know? She smiled again. They told me that you followed them because you were curious like their brother wolf. And they were curious about you. So they started following you. They also smelled your sandwich. They wouldn't hurt you, though. We walked for a few minutes, still being followed by the coyotes. I was beginning to suspect that she had been feeding them over the tenure of her employment at the B&B. Oh, I stopped and dug into my bag to retrieve the figurine. I found this in the orchard. I guess it had been buried, but the rain unearthed it some. It was at the center of that area that I found the other day, you you know, where the grass was pressed down, although I don't think it was a coyotes anymore. I grabbed the figure and brought it forth from my bag. It looked more like some other animal, or or maybe people tamped the grass down. Serene took one look at the figurine and blanched. Shakily, she pulled the figurine from my hands. What have you done, boy? My heart sank. I thought she would have been as excited as I was. She clenched the figurine. Her eyes widened, and she cried to me in a hideous, almost guttural tone of voice. What have you done? I answered. I I saw something like it in an old book of mine once. I I thought it was interesting. I I don't know. I tried to justify my actions, but before I could explain further, she ran into the orchard. I looked over and saw the coyotes watching her run off, so I ran after her. I shouted her name. I shouted that I was sorry. She made it to the circle before I did, dropped to her knees, and started digging up the ground in the middle. She was crying, trying to hum the island tune. The coyote stopped and watched as I got on my knees and dug as well. When we had a large enough hole for the figurine, I picked it up, placed it in the hole right side up, and began putting earth back on top of it. Serene cried. No, 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 no. She pulled the figure back up and turned it upside down and put it back in the ground. She muttered like that. She fell back onto her rear and hummed and cried. When I was done covering the figurine up, I looked around. The coyotes were nowhere to be seen. Serene was still crying, humming that island tune. I searched for the right words of apology, but there was none. She scooted over closer to me and put her arms around me. I began humming with her. Her tears became fierce and her sobs forced her to stop humming. I stopped as well. That's when we heard it. It started as a sharp, keen far away, but by the main road. The keen became the sound of tires wrestling with the pavement, trying desperately to hold on. Then there was a sudden, sickening silence of friction between the tires and the pavement being broken, and it was followed by a heart-wrenching, solid crash. No sounds of something being dragged across the asphalt, or sounds of car parts shattering or skittering across the road like insects. Just a vomit-inducing crunch. Serene stopped crying and was silent. She stood up and began to run back to the B&B. I followed. But by the time we're at the edge of the orchard, close enough to see the guests at the B&B, my parents and their friends included, standing in the groups on the grounds, we heard the sirens and saw the smoke. The car had somehow left the road and hit a tree across the street from the B&B. Serene immediately went to be with a group of people that worked at the B&B. She put her arms around a large white guy, and he held her as she wept more. I found my parents as the ambulances showed up. The fire truck actually pulled into the driveway at the B&B. Everyone was anxious to know if the driver was okay, or if there had been passengers, or if if, if there were okay. My parents' friends went and spoke with several of the firemen and the EMTs. When they returned, they urged everybody to return inside. The EMTs had informed them that that was rather gruesome and none of us should be around to witness them extract the body from the vehicle. I didn't see Serene again that night. The EMTs and the firefighters worked for several hours. I was watching from the bar when they moved a large black bag on a gurney from the crash to the ambulance. The bag had a very distinct profile. You could make it out even under the material. I told my parents my story about the coyotes and they left me off the hook for taking the beers. In fact. They let me have the last one out of my pack because they thought that I was frightened by the accident. When the ambulances began to leave without lights and sirens, my parents' friends went outside to talk to the few remaining firemen. A large white man came out of the kitchen and entered the bar as I stood by the window and watched. He approached me and sighed. Terrible thing, isn't it? I looked up at him. Yeah, I wonder what happened. He grimaced and said to me, There are many bad things in the orchard. He nodded at me and continued. You understand that Serene's upset, right? You know why. I shook my head. The spirits will be very angry now, very angry. I nodded. Tell her I'm sorry. He considered it. And before turning to leave, he replied, The orchard is big, and there are many curious things in it. But curious boys don't belong there. He left the room as my mom's friend returned. That's a horrible thing to hear, said Scott. His wife, the other owner, replied, Tragic. My parents stared for a moment. The fire truck had left. My dad asked, what happened? I said from the window. A pregnant woman was beheaded and died in a crash. They turned to look at me. How did you know? Asked my mother's friend. Always had nightmares. From age 7 to 23, I always had nightmares every night. They were always gruesome or straight up evil got to the point where I wouldn't want to sleep because I would either wake up crying or throwing up from the traumatic experience I've just put myself through. I never understood the reason why I would always have these. My family would just say, it's okay, you've just been watching too many scary movies. The thing is, I hardly ever watched horror movies when I was little. My nightmares were scary enough. I didn't find out what was causing the nightmares until I was 23. My family has always believed in the supernatural, and we're super spiritual. We believe in demons and we clean our house out of potential doorways to bring them in, we're having one of those times when I found the source of the nightmares. We were listening to this cool old Southern man named Wyn Worley who had the same beliefs as ours. We were learning more ways to remove demons and other issues from our house by his teachings. We had learned that crosses, statues, anything pagan related like crystals, tarot cards, Ouija boards, witchy stuff, you know, were the things that brought demonic activity into your home. One of those things that brought demonic activity was dolls. I had over 60 porcelain dolls in my room at the time. I had received my first collection piece from my grandmother at the age of seven. It was two dolls on a swing, a little boy and a girl, holding hands and kissing. My collection had grown massively over the years, and I loved them, though they scared everyone who visited. I had clowns, lots of girls in frilly dresses, and I even owned a four-foot gorgeous doll that was a birthday gift from my stepfather, Ted. The doll was my favorite. I was in my room. My mother came in and said, you won't believe the other thing Wynn mentioned that we need to get rid of. And so, I'm looking at her from doing a craft on my bed and I raise an eyebrow thinking, oh great, that means something I have. She stated, "Your dolls. Apparently dolls were possible empty shells where entities could move into and torment you in your sleep. My nightmares began around the time I started to get my dolls. So it started to make sense, but I wasn't fully sold on this idea. The story that came along with this explanation was a woman had a doll in her room and her husband had caught the doll hovering over her bed and turned to look at the man. The doll said that it was here to torment her in her sleep every night. I sighed and looked at my room, which was so cluttered with all my dolls that all I could think of was, geez, this is going to take a lot of work. I sighed, all right, I'll have a yard sale for them. I might keep the one that Ted gave me though. My mother agreed that we can do that and walked off to continue to listen to Wind Warley, and I continued doing my own thing. The night before the yard cell, I had my worst and final nightmare. It wasn't that surprising since I had nightmares every night, but this one scared me rather badly. The dream was me being tormented by poltergeists. I was being chased by some invisible thing that was throwing objects at me, locking me inside rooms, throwing knives, all sorts of stuff. At one point in my dream, I was running outside and I had a water ball in my hand and the lid had become unscrewed on its own accord and the water started to float out of the bottle and form a head attached to a really skinny long neck. The head turned to me. It had black eyes and super sharp, shark-like teeth. It was telling me that my stepfather had given me the doll so that he could kill me. I was freaking out and moved the bottle so that the skinny neck of the head would chew itself to death. The water turned to blood and I woke up. In this panic, I look over to the four-foot-tall doll I had displayed on a stand, which normally faced away from me, towards my bedroom door. Its neck was turned, so it was looking at me. The doll winked at me. actually winked, and the head turned to look back in its normal direction. I flipped out, got angry. How dare this thing torment me and give me such horrible nightmares when I was going to spare it. I got out of bed, started grabbing my dolls, wrapped them up in a blanket, and shoved them into garbage bags and took them outside. I was cussing them all out in the driveway and got a hammer and smashed them all to pieces and threw them away. Then I cleansed my house now that they weren't in there anymore and whatever was inside the dolls wouldn't come back inside. I stopped having nightmares. But what made me realize that this wasn't just a coincidence was when my best friend bought me two little skeleton bunny figurines that I had put in my room. Not even one night of them being in my home, I did have a nightmare. I threw them away and I never had another one. So just throwing this insane idea out there, if any of you are having nightmares, it could be something in your home causing it. Thank you for listening to Just the Terror with Nick Gara. Make sure to check out True Scary Stories with Edie on Tuesdays. Give it five stars. And stay scared, uglies.